Greetings, Earthlings. My name is Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. Before we get going today, I want to let you know about a new mini-documentary that I hosted with Seeker Network on the impact that cesspools are having on Hawaii's coral reefs. You can check it out on my website, kyle.surf slash blog. Let me know what you think of it. If you like this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes, share it with a friend, reach out to me via Facebook and Instagram, and let me know who you want me to have on next and how I can be making this experience better for you. I'm really enjoying it. Having a blast. My guest today is Trace Dominguez. Trace is a professional geek for Discovery Communications. Those are his words, not mine who constantly seeks interesting stories in space, biology, history, animals, earth, internet, politics, pop culture, and physics. You can find him most days on Discovery's YouTube channel, D News, where you will see hundreds of videos of him explaining to you how the world works. In this conversation, Trace and I got into uh, a recent trip that he went on to the Svalbard Seed Vault. He gives great advice on uh, getting in the door into a media career. And man, I just really enjoyed this conversation. He is fabulously charismatic, endlessly curious, and owns his personality. I love people that own their personalities. Please welcome Trace Dominguez. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. What was the best thing that happened to you today? Um, today, we shot a video for our science channel, D News. We're about to hit 2 million subscribers. I'm really excited about it. I'm also kind of emotional about it. Because, I don't know, I've been here since doing this science stuff since 2012. And, like, I've had all these different teams. And I've met all these different people. And I've done all this amazing stuff. And can I say, can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely. I, I've done all this amazing shit. And, like... Now that we're at 2 million subscribers, I mean, that's like a huge milestone. So most people who aren't in the YouTube world don't even understand what a subscriber means. Get me into the importance of that. Okay, so in YouTube, uh, it's kind of like subscribing to an RSS feed or a newsletter, uh, but instead of getting an email or getting a little link every so often, you're getting the video that we upload to our channel. So... We got two million people who said they wanted to get our video. What does it mean by like getting your video? So you press the little subscribe button mm-hmm. on YouTube, and you know all the YouTube videos are like, "Hey, subscribe to our channel!" Like, yeah, yeah, what yeah. does that actually do for you, though? For me, I mean, for me and for our channel, it, it means that we have this base of people that definitely are interested. The funny thing is about YouTube. Uh, most people don't subscribe to things. You know, we get a, If we have 2 million subscribers, what we really have are 2 million subscribers who definitely want it, uh, want our product. But we have lots and lots of more people who don't subscribe, never have logged into YouTube, don't have a Google account, don't have any of that stuff, and they're also watching. So it's, it's a metric that is nebulous in some ways because it doesn't necessarily mean 2 million subscribers doesn't mean we're getting 2 million views. 
but it does mean that 2 million people have in the last four years said, this is worthy of me clicking a tiny mouse button a little bit. And that feels pretty good. And it's been a ama- <laughs> It's also been what it seems like is a major um, dedication to it from you. I mean, you moved yeah. out from Washington, D.C. when yeah. you started working at D News right from the beginning out to San Francisco. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that process. Well, um, I guess a little about me. I uh, started, How did you start yeah, doing yeah. what you're doing? So I started, um, I guess it kind of goes back. So, okay, I, I, got it. I went to college for psychology. I thought, you know, it would be cool to help people understand sexuality better. That was what I wanted to do. Like I, I, I legit wanted to teach people about sex and why it was important for them to know what this biological process is that literally every living thing, well, except asexual people and things, and well, most living things tend to do, right? Um, but we don't know that much about it. Like even in the study of it, we still don't know that much about it. So I thought this is super interesting. Everybody does it, but nobody talks about it. So let's. And I grew up in the Midwest, so we really didn't talk about it. Um, so I thought it would be cool to like educate people on that. Then it turns out you need a PhD, and I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. And so I took some time off, and I moved to London. While I was living in London, I was like, the media here is crazy, but so interesting and dynamic, and and you can trust the media in some ways and in other ways you just see it as like this frivolous exercise, but you know the difference and that's super interesting to me. So I thought I definitely want to work in the media. So I went back to the U S and I got a a master's degree at American university. And while I was there, I got an internship at this little place uh, called the discovery channel, which I had no idea was even in the DC area. Like I watched it growing up, but I didn't know anything about it. And then um, I'm going to cut you off for a second. Yeah. How was London media different than media here? Oh, sure. So the British media system is such a different animal. Like when we think of British media, we probably think of the BBC, right? The BBC is like their big export. You know, they have four radio stations or like five or something. They have a few television stations and that's like the base, you know, welcome to the BBC, you know, and it's like that's the voice of Britain, except that they also have Sky News, which is like their cable system. They have satellite television. They have all these other things. They have all these other radio stations. Virgin America, while I was living there, like what you think of as the airline uh, by Richard, uh, he also had a radio station called Virgin Radio, and they just played like rock music and stuff. But they also, on top of all of that plethora of media that we also have, they have a very active like paparazzi tabloid system, and they don't really have the ethics that we one could argue used to have um so they'll just say whatever they want you know every paper is the national Enquirer. like they can all just do that and people read them and they come out four or five times a day and like there are people hawking them on street corners like it's the 1930s and they're just like oh you know pippa's blowing somebody and you're like what is happening in the news right now and it's like well it's not really real you know, there's the sun that every day comes out, and on page three is a girl who's topless. Like, that is their paper. Like, they have all this other stuff they're talking about, but page three, man, did you see page three today? It's just, like, so weird. They just have such a weird mediascape. But I thought it was so cool. Um, so, yeah, so I thought I'd come back and do that. But then journalism jobs are hard to come by, you know. It, so I decided to get a degree in something else, like just general communication, which got me an internship, which ended up uh, – like long story short, getting me into working for TLC for a while. And finally for discovery communications website, discoverynews.com, a tiny little website that very few people have heard of, but a million people a month were visiting in some way or another, like a million page views a month. Anyway, maybe not a million people. 
And um, they said, hey, you have to make video. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't know anything about making video. I know nothing about it. I know how to hit record on like a camera. Maybe. Most cameras. Like the ones with the big red button. <laughs> and then um, now that was in 2011. So I made 48 episodes of a show called This Week in Discovery News. You can Google it. It's terrible. Uh, and then a year after that, I started with D News. Like it took me a year of kind of like practicing at work. And then it was my full-time job to make video every single day of the week for the rest of that time. Why are you interested in exploring sex subjects? Hmm. I mean... Because you're a science guy. Yeah. Um, I mean, when most people think of Trace, he's Trace yeah. the science guy. Yeah, I mean... What was it about that that originally got you interested? I wasn't having a lot of it, I guess. <laughs> like, I if, mean, I if I understand this deed... it more... <laughs> <laughs> It will, um, it will all be mine. <laughs> you have that, to be, you have to be smarter than sex. Yeah. <laughs> if I have to really get it, you know, I don't understand it all. Uh, <laughs> some of it was that. Um, a lot of it is just is literally like half of everybody wants to have it with the other half of everybody. You know, like generalizing. Obviously, there are people that want to have it with the first half, and there are people that don't want to have it at all, and. Then there are people who want to have it with everybody, which all in that is also interesting. But it's like if half of the human society is trying to do this with the other half of human society, shouldn't we know more about it Like than we know about how leaves work? But we don't. We know more, way more about leaves. We know like everything about leaves. <laughs> like every leaf. We could like tell you all – ask a botanist. They will tell you everything about leaves. But if you ask like a sex researcher why we orgasm, they're like, well, we think – think that it might be because of this but we're not you know but there's a lot of variables you know it's just how do we know more about leaves i don't get it i don't get it so that's what interests me it was just there was so much more there it seemed like the science wasn't settled and and i wanted to help settle it so the sex drive led you to an internship (laughs) at discovery Right, right yeah and the internship uh led to a job with tlc how did that um, Which was progression land? I mean, for anyone who's listening who wants to get into media, and sure. and the only um, entry level position is at as an intern. How was it that you took those steps oh, man. Um, yeah. to actually go from an intern to a, a contractor to a full employee? Well, I mean, firstly, don't follow my path. My path was so meandering, but. I think everyone says that. Like, I've never met somebody who works in media who says, my path was perfect. My path was exactly what you're supposed to do. You know, I went to film school, I started making films, and now I'm Steven Spielberg. Like, that doesn't happen. You know, nobody does that. But what I ended up doing is, um, my mom always said, make yourself indispensable. Uh, I didn't know how to do that. Like, I think anybody's mom who says that, you're like, okay, mom, whatever. Mm. Like, I don't know what that means. But what comes, what, what happens is, the little things that make you you, if you can make those things indispensable. Like they need your unique way of looking at the world in their editorial pitches or like in the way that they want to make their videos. They want your opinion. That's making you indispensable. It's not I'm the only one who can flip this switch. It's I'm the only one who can think about how to flip the switch in the right way, right? Um, and I don't know if I'm the only one, but I was the only one that they knew. And that's also part of it is being in the circle. Like once you're in, you're in, right? So once I got the internship, I was able to kind of make a good impression with some really smart people. And then I didn't work there anymore. I actually applied to work for discoverynews.com in 2010. 
Um, and the editor-in-chief said, I didn't have the experience. I'd been working there three months. And she's like, you don't have enough experience for that. You're not going to work here. And I was like, okay. Give an example of um, making yourself indispensable in the room. How does that actually show up without uh, being braggadocious? Yeah, and that's a big part. But, uh, you know, because there are a lot of people that just want to sound smart just for mm-hmm. the sake of sounding smart and use yeah. big words like obsequious. Obsequious. It's a good one. Uh, obsequious. Good one. Uh, you, know, you know what obsequious means? I don't even know. Obsequious means um, obedient or attentive to an excessive or annoying degree. Oh, man. Which... That yeah, you can be obsequious by trying to use the word obsequious you in the wrong be. room. You can be absolutely. Um, anyway, but, get, but f- yeah. for real, bring me into a room like that of of how you you know presented a- yourself and and made yourself indispensable um, because it is it's more nuanced than yeah. probably more people think. I mean, it's a, that's a tough question in that it's going to be different in every room. It's going to be different with every group. You know how I made myself indispensable when I was say, at TLC, a job that I liked, but it wasn't my forever job. And I knew that at the time, and I think they knew it too. But we both wanted something from the other one that we could have, right? Um, Actually, a really good example of that was when I was living in London. I got a job as a personal assistant, and they love titles, to the Deputy Dean of Faculty of Health and Social Care at the College of Midwifery in the London South Bank University. I bet you cannot say that ten times fast. (laughs) I cannot, but... Uh, it was a great job at the time. You know, I was right out of college. I'd never had like a career nine to five kind of job before. And I showed up and uh, eventually they admitted to me over lunch one time. They're like, we hired you for your computer skills because we need to do this thing. And we're not as good with computers. And we knew that you were because we saw it on your resume. That was what made me indispensable. And I was lucky enough that they picked me out of the crowd. And what it really meant was I knew my way around a computer. It wasn't that I was a, I'm not a coder, you know, I've built my own computer, but that wasn't even it. It was just, you could do this faster than we could do this. You could do this little thing, this one skill better than us. And so now when I, I've taken that kind of learning into other things, it's not that I'm the best or the smartest or, or the most dedicated even all the time. If I can be one of those things, then I'm, then I am indispensable because some people never make it past this is this is just my job, you know. And that's cool. Like if that's if that's makes you happy and you're cool with that, you're going to have a great time at work. Like this is my job and I want to be able to work here and then leave. Get off at 5, watch right. Game of Thrones and exactly. call, it, call it a life. Yeah, and a lot of people that's that's all they want. They want to be able to pay for the Game of Thrones subscription, right? Um but for me, I don't know. I've always been the guy who steals the HBO Go account. <laughs> Yeah, well, I did for a while. Now that I can buy it, I actually feel much better about it almost. I feel like almost better, like in my soul. Like I've I'm, made I'm it. Paying, Look who made it. I'm like, I'm paying for Game of Thrones. I'm helping make that show. Like, yep. <laughs> True Detective, I earned this. <laughs> not season two, though. Not, no, not no, season just, two. Just, just season, season one. Season one. Yes. Season one. M- McConaughey <laughs> in his prime. <laughs> I always wanted to see Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey on screen together. and uh, I think It did not disappoint. It did not at all. It good. was really God, good. God, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how we got there. Um, so what? I mean, I liked where we ended up. I, li- I, yeah, I, I really love it. Fine with it. Good God, I know. <laughs> now I need to rewatch it. I feel like, <sighs> yeah, but yeah. not season two. No, but not season. Two. <laughs> Time is a flat circle, and season two is not a flat circle. Okay, so um, let's keep moving forward. Yeah. So uh, once once I kind of figured out my path through discovery, like I got in the door. That's the hard part. Is 
is with if you're trying to get into a media career, getting in the door is the first part that you the hardest part, you know, getting over that wall and into the room. And then once you're in the room, it's not speaking up the most, it's not being the loudest, it's not again, not even being the smartest in the room, but it's offering a perspective that the room didn't have before. So it's easier, I think, if you're a young person who once you're in the room, you can give the opinion of young people. And if the room is filled with old people, if the room is filled with young people, then it's maybe a little harder to just do that. You have to find your niche, the thing that you do that they don't do, you know? And when it comes to discovery, because it's such a big company and there's so many moving parts and there's so many different people, finding that for me was rooted in computers for a while. Then it was rooted in science for a little while because I knew how to do computers and I knew enough about science that I could write competently about it and like learn. Um, but now I would say my niche, the thing that keeps me there that I can do that they can't do um, is distill the information quickly, right? I firmly believe anyone, anyone can write a D news episode. Anybody can say, this is a cool science concept. I'm going to write 500 words and tell you about it. It might take them a day where it might take a really seasoned writer an hour. Um, but they might not distill the information in an interesting way in the same way that I think that I can, whether that's true or not. I don't know. Like, but that's how I feel like I'm indispensable now is that that's my, that's my thing. What's your process for writing a D news episode? That's great. Walk me through that. Uh, I ask myself questions. It's what I call the third question philosophy. So everyone has questions about everything, you know, okay. Ask me, ask me a science question. I'll just do the process with that. So ask me a science question. Um, doesn't so, have to be crazy. Anything, any kind of science, question. Anything. any kind of science question. Okay. Uh, when I pick this phone up, why does it drop to the ground? Okay. So why do things fall? Right. Things fall because of gravity. I look, I, you know, if I don't know anything and I Google that, I'm going to get that answer. Why do things fall? They fall because of gravity. Oh, cool. Well, if I'm making a D news and I'm starting there, the next question I'm going to ask is what is gravity? And I'm going to get Gravity is an attraction of mass based on other mass, right? Mass attracts to each other. You're like, oh, cool. Okay. Why does it do that? That's the third question. And the best part is, that's a great question because we don't know. That's the best part. So, and it turns out by the time you get to the third question of almost anything, you've started to get interesting. So the answer is, we don't know why there's gravity. We think that it's because of certain properties of matter. There's probably some subatomic particle called a gravitron, gravitron, not the ride, not the ride, a graviton that causes matter to attract to other matter in the same way that electrical, like electrical things attract each other, magnets and whatnot, and uh, like positive and negative charge things attract. In that same way, there's gravity, but it's so weak because you need so much mass to get this very small attraction that we haven't detected it yet. So now I've just written a D news episode like that third question. And then like, well, why haven't we found a graviton? How do we know there are gravitons? How do we know all of these things exist? What is happening? Like once you get past the third question, you've written a D news episode. That's it. It's asking questions and answering them honestly, and then finding that story. And sometimes it's harder. You know, if you ask me a question that one, there's no science to, or there's so much science to that you have to pick and choose that's where kind of the nuance of the job comes in. But that third question is where the fun starts every time, every single time in my experience. And how do you order the questions? 
So it's really just a logical progression, you know, like if you, uh, you know, were... Why does the phone drop? Right, yeah. Okay. So you just say like, well, I have this question about, you know, how does like a bird fly? Why is the sky blue? Why, you know, why does it smell funny after it rains? Like the first question is always a very kind of big idea question. It's usually something that everyone has, an, has a question about, you know, um, like why, do, why does food get stale? Like, oh, well... I Google it. Why does food get stale? Well, it gets stale because moisture gets in it. Well, why does that make it stale? Like, what what does stale even mean then? Is that just is that a real thing, or is it just something that would happen to everything? Do other things get stale? Like, there are so many different ways you can go from there that now now you have to kind of pick and choose. And for me, just listing those things, I want to know: Does everything get stale? Right? Like everything. Like, what kind of cool things can we go that way? Is it do do trees get stale? Is there like a ideal point for bacteria to get stuff? Like they won't eat it anymore, or you know, or different bacteria will eat it. Like there comes a point where you have to have some knowledge, and that's where I think my niche is: is that I can usually find those interesting paths. Um, but it's usually a pretty logical progression of one thing to the next thing, to the third question, and then once you get there, you can go anywhere. What T News episodes uh, have started the best conversations? I'm not going to ask what have been the most popular ones. You can answer that as well. But which ones do you think, and it might be the same, which ones do you think have started the most interesting conversations? I would say the best ones are are great. They're not my favorite usually, and they're not the ones that I would say start the best conversations because the best conversations are the ones that are started by – something that most people wouldn't have thought of in the first place um, because, you know, somebody just asks you the question that everybody asks uh, when they don't know what to ask, which if it's not the weather, it's like, what do you do? And when you can answer like, oh, you know, I make science videos. Oh, what's that about? Well, today we talked about like 11 dimensions of space time, how there are more than, there's way more than the third, you know? And they're like, what are you talking about? You're like, oh, well, you live in the third dimension, and the fourth dimension is time. I mean, it's not really, but it sort of is. And then the fifth dimension is if you could walk through time and space in the same way that you could walk through a room, and you're, and people just start asking questions, right? So the stuff like videos like that, where we did a video about the parallel dimensions, that started an interesting conversation for people. Or like conversation – I mean – the most popular ones are answers that why do dogs spin before they poop? You know, that's a, it's a great question. It's an interesting answer. Or like, do we really need to wear bras? Or how can we charge cell phones faster? Like questions everybody has, but they don't require a lot of conversation. You know, the conversations come from like, why don't we send nuclear waste to the sun? You know, why? Why don't we? The sun is a big, you know, ball of effervescent nuclear fuel. Why wouldn't we just send all of our nuclear waste there? Why do we bury it in Nevada? So then you end up talking about it, like, and you end up getting people's thoughts and opinions, and some people are afraid of nuclear waste, and some people are like, that makes perfect sense. And then you have to talk about, well, well, how would you send it to the sun? How would you safely get it to space? What if the rocket explodes? Like, we've got a lot of that lately. Like, what happens if that happens? Then there's nuclear waste everywhere, and you just end up in these cool conversations about stuff. And that episode did well. We did it about why you don't send nuclear waste to the sun. It, you know, got a quarter million views, which is great, but at the same time, it wasn't one of our, our most popular episodes, and it probably never will be, because it's kind of a niche question, unless you really love that Superman movie where he does that, 
you probably never would have thought of sending it there because it's just like, well, they bury it in Nevada. That's what they do. Who are you talking to when you're making a D News episode? Oh, everybody. The best D News when you're, episodes. When you're, when you're looking at the camera, do you think about who you're talking oh. to? My buddy Ray, usually. My buddy Ray. He was, uh, he was my roommate in college and after college. I've known him for a long time. I met him um, sophomore year of college. He lived in the same dorm as me down the hall. I was, I was a RA, so I should say residence life. You know, res hall. It's not dorm. It's a res hall. <laughs> What's Ray like? Uh, Ray is a Midwestern hockey plan dude. We tried to come up with names for each other while we were there. Um, but he's me if I were wittier, but it's slightly more introverted. You know, we have very similar ways of looking at the world in some ways and very different in other ways. And I think the ways that we overlap just like sing you know i'm very politically motivated he's politically more apathetic you know he, we're both kind of geeky techie we both game uh or did at the time he keeps gaming today i've i've stopped but we still talk about stuff you know um we both like fantasy and sci-fi and and kind of nerdy things so we had lots to talk about we both love computers and building them and uh you know things like that so we had these overlapping things we could talk about um, you know, he plays hockey. I like hockey. <laughs> so we could talk about that. But it's really more like I want to hear what it's like to play it because it's an experience I don't have, you know. So there are these places where we overlap, but we have very distinctively different things to talk about, which I think works really well, like in a really good friendship. So when I think of like if I were explaining science to a friend, I think of what would Ray want to know because he's super smart and I want to make sure that he smiles when I tell him. You know, like I'm trying to make him smirk in my brain. It's I, This is bringing up a lot for me because some of the best public speaking advice I ever got was if you're nervous and you don't know who to talk to, talk to your friend. Mm -hmm. Talk to your friend who doesn't know anything about what you're, what you're talking about but is super interested yeah. and smart. I think yeah. that a lot a, – a big mistake that a lot of people make is that they treat people like they're stupid. Yeah. Not not that they're that they don't know. There's a difference between treating someone like they're stupid and treating someone like they don't know about what it is that you're talking right, to. Right, right, right. And and one of the things that I appreciate about the way that you come across on D News is you don't treat people like they're idiots. You treat people like they're interested and they want to know more. And as a result, it makes me want to know more. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I, I know that there's this like common thread among the media and among history. You know, HL. Ooh, it's beeping. Something's beeping. That's fine. Um, you know, there's this common thread among history and the media, like, you know, H.L. Mencken, there's a sucker born every minute kind of stuff. I do think that um, there are stupid people and there are smart people, but I don't think anybody's not curious. I think everyone wants to know more stuff, you know? And I honestly don't think I've ever met a stupid person. I'm sure they exist, but it's a matter of your frame of reference, right? Just like smart is a matter of your frame of reference. You can have the most PhD credentialed person in the world, but if you ask them to tie a knot and they don't know how to tie it, they are now stupid in this topic, right? So I try and put myself in like the shoes of I am both stupid and smart at whatever we're talking about. I know a little bit about a lot of stuff, but I don't know everything about anything, which I really like and it helps a lot. And I think telling your friend who is interested is the perfect way to go because then you're also more yourself, which is good. 
right? right? Because you're not talking down to anyone. You're not talking. You're not trying to tell people who disagree with you. You're not trying to 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 I don't know teach people in a in a kind of a condescending way because you're talking to your buddy. You know, you're talking to you're talking to your ray. And if you can talk to your ray, you want your ray to 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 come with you on this journey. And to do that, you need to engage Ray, tell him something he's interested in, and then pull him with you into your curiosity, right? I had a great professor in, uh, in undergrad named Mark Orby. He's awesome. And he was so thoughtful in so many different ways. Like, I took a class of female male communication. He put female first because most people would put male first. It was just a thoughtful way to kind of structure the class. Like, you start with that, huh, that's interesting. And he said, a good teacher is, uh, is not a sage on the stage, but a guide on the side. You know, a good educator is there to, to show you where to go, not to, not to talk about themselves or to show themselves off. And I really took that to heart. I thought that was, that was spot on. Have you always been a confident presenter? No way. Not, not, no, no. <laughs> so, uh, in high school, my high school was – my parents moved to the town I'm from, DeWitt, Michigan, because of the school system. When I was um, in high school, I had a lot of – I was in the band. I had a lot of friends in drama. Our arts program – like, if you watch movies from the 80s and 90s, right, uh, the arts programs are where the nerd kids go, and then the football players and stuff are kind of in a whole different class. And, and that's true. That was true in our school, too. But – a lot of the football players were also involved in the drama program or in the band. And a lot of, like, people weren't segregated by I'm creative and I'm, I'm, I'm brawny. It wasn't brawn versus brains. It, there were, people could be both. Uh, and maybe that was just my experience, but I felt that way. You know, the guy who was the quarterback of our football team was also in the musical and sang parts and was like a leading role for a while. So there, I think our school had that going for it. So there was a lot of pressure for me as as a youth to try drama and I could never do it. I could never bring myself to put myself in front of other people. And I don't know why. I don't know what, what it was exactly. I don't know why I felt that way. I don't know what I was nervous about. Like now looking back, it's like, well, I mean, it was just like a bunch of people in a room that, you know, you know them all even like, you know them, but it's like almost knowing them made it harder. Something about as I got older, one giving fewer fucks, that helped, um, but I don't know. Maybe it's something about not knowing who I'm looking at, but there was this middle ground where I had to present because I got this job that I loved. So I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout. I, when I was in scouting I in Michigan, there's this thing called the Governor's Honor Guard. It's on Mackinac Island. It's a tiny island about eight miles around in between the peninsulas of Michigan um, in the Straits of Mackinac. And there's a fort there. The fort has had scouts working at it since Gerald R. Ford went there as an Eagle Scout. Thirteen Eagle Scouts started the program in, like, like way earlier in, in the last century. Like, I can't remember the year. 1926 or, so, you know, or something. Like, 1940. I don't even remember. Uh, I used to know all the dates, but I don't remember anymore. Either way, Gerald R. Ford was one of the first scouts. So it was when he was a kid, right? Um... And now they still have scouts doing this job. And I did this. And then when I got to college, I applied to work at that fort as an interpreter, uh, which they call a historic interpreter. Essentially, I'm still Trace, but I'm wearing a costume of the 1880s soldiers that worked there. 
and I'm like firing the cannon and I'm like carrying around this like 1870s rifle and they used original equipment. So I'm carrying around an 1870s rifle and like talking to people about how it works. And it's just, it's, it was such a fun job. But part of that was like talking to hundreds of people at a time and giving them tours and like sounding authoritative and, and it was my job. And so part of it was, I really loved that place. It really like made me happy to be there. And in order to stay there, I had to learn this skill. And so I sort of backed my way into it. And uh, it was really fun. I did it for like six, seven, six, seven summers. Um, even after college, I went back and did it until it was, you know, it was time to move on. You can't stay somewhere forever. And, uh, but it was just, I mean, if you ever get a chance, go. It's the best, it's the best place. I try and get there every year. I think since 2002, I've only missed two years. Uh, but I've been there every summer. Wow. Yeah. I have I don't know about this. I'll mm-hmm. have to come check it out sometime. Oh man, it's it's beautiful. It's you stand on like a limestone bluff in a fort built in 1780 and you can you can see for miles around and it's just the most beautiful thing. It's just water everywhere and trees and I don't know. It's just something about it. And they they out, also outlawed cars in the 1890s. So it's all horse carriages and so it's just like hear horses go by and you look out over the water and I don't know, I feel home. I just feel home there. And that's where you learned your presentation skills. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that's where I really came into my own in, in terms of talking to lots of people, doing research and figuring out what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. And there are YouTube videos. Luckily this was 2002 to 2006 or seven. So there's not that many, (laughs) But there are YouTube videos of me doing that. And I look back and I can see kind of the beginnings of what I still am doing now. Like now I'm more Trace, I think. But maybe more Trace the character then, you know. Like I was trying to be this person. And uh, now I'm just kind of myself, which is nice. But it's more nuanced, I think. Can you get into any of that nuance? Like if you see an early YouTube video of yourself, what is the difference? Yeah, I think. And what um, would you tell yourself? I think snap out of it, man. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) I think I would go the other way. Is that weird to say? Like, I think I miss early trace because early trace didn't know what he was doing. And so he did stupid things, but those stupid things were like more natural to my personality. And now I try and be more polished. I try and be, uh, you know, more correct. And it's not that it's less fun. It's just different. Like at the time that I was working at the fort, the first summer I was there, I think I was too nonchalant, right? You know, I'm standing in front of hundreds of people. I'm wearing a uniform of the 1880s soldier, and I said, you know, that people would take their bayonet and stab a rat for their supper. Not really. But the thing that they hear is the first thing, and they don't really register the second thing. So now an expert has told them that Civil War soldiers were stabbing rats for supper. And yes, it was a joke, but they might not see it as a joke. And that's, a, that's kind of a slippery slope and kind of a dangerous place to be when you're talking about history and real people. And, and um, so that was a little nonchalant. But now I've kind of pendulumed a little bit so much that now it's super polished and I've done it so many times and I've gotten so much better at it that I would almost like wish I, I watch old videos and kind of wish I could go back to that that whimsicalness of it from time to time. But at the same time, um, I think I would tell myself it's more important than, than you realize. Like, I think that's why, because now I'm not just a presenter, uh, you know, talking about the latest headlines in science. 
I'm an authority figure in science. For some, like I have Hispanic heritage. For some, I'm a Latino, you know, authority figure in science. And that's a big deal for a lot of people. I get messages from people who are like, you know, I want to do what you do when you grow up. And that was that was a big wake up call. So it's harder to be it's harder to be that whimsical. So I think it would kind of go both ways. I would like to go back and talk to talk to early museum presenter Trace and be like, dude, don't move your hand so much. <laughs> you don't have to like gesture that wildly. Like they get it. But at the same time, I don't know. I feel like not as much has changed as uh, I would have thought. Because I watched a video recently because of this 2 million thing. We were watching early videos and it's pretty much the same. I'm, But I, I moved more then, you know, like I was more stage because of the museum time. And right. now I'm more reserved i don't move as much i make more facial expressions but fewer body movements you know it's like those things that you forget that you had to learn it's weird right well i mean you're doing it every single day also so i mean talk about integrating it quickly and learning quickly i mean you're doing it about as quickly as anyone can yeah i got very lucky that people were willing to pay me to learn it yeah not everybody gets that you know like you've been doing your YouTube work and you've been getting help from like financial help from different groups. But it's like it was my job to learn how to do it, which is ridiculously lucky. Nobody gets that. Nobody gets paid to learn to make YouTube videos. Uh, and the consistency of, of that you get to make a new video every single day, you're going to get good at it. I yeah. still I mean, I've been making YouTube videos for eight years, but there is a lack of consistency that I feel sometimes where, I mean, I I did one D news episode with you Mm -hmm. and it was a blast, super fun time, but I was fucking nervous going into it for one reason or another. Like I've been on camera a ton, but it's not that same consistency. Yeah. And, um, my favorite comment I got from Al is my friend (laughs) after he said, you blinked 16 times before you said your first line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, shit, I still got so much work to do. Yeah. I liked when you were on our D-News Plus show. It actually uh, helped me learn something because um, we were trying to figure out how to do, uh, you know, podcasting. And you were, we were talking and you just like leaned back and like stretched. And I was like, oh, right, because it's a podcast. He's just like being relaxed and making sure that he's comfortable so he can keep talking about stuff. Whereas I tend to be like, Oh my God, the camera's rolling. I got to stay on. But it's like not, it's not, it's not as much about that as it's about like making sure the story stays consistent, you know, and making sure that you feel good and and loose and ready. You know? Uh, So what would you say is the difference? um, And how does it feel in the production sense of it? Doing a D news episode as opposed to actually going out in the field and doing a story. I mean, you just got, you got back from, uh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. So I'm not even going to try it, but the seed, the seed bank story. Yeah. Yeah. The seed vault, the, the Svalbard global seed vault. Svalbard. Svalbard. (laughs) It's, 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 um, you could, you could try the, the, the city instead of the, the region. It's called, Longyearbyen. 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 It's it's long year and then B-Y-E-N. Longyearbyen. Longyearbyen. Uh, Tell me the story. So doing a D-News in the studio, the nice thing about it is it's comfortable. I've done it a lot. You know, We've made literally thousands of videos in that studio. 
uh, that I've been in. And so I'm, I'm very comfortable. I know what I'm doing. I know all of the things, like everything's controlled. I know that the lighting is good. The, the sound is going to be good. And if it's not, they're going to tell me. When you go out in the field, everything <laughs> everything's a mess. Who knows what's happening? You know, who knows where where the light's going to be? Who knows where that whether the camera is you're in focus perfectly or not? And you can't do it twice because you're not going to be in Longyearbyen again. <laughs> like you know, so you do it four or five times, and you just hope for the best, which is crazy. But it makes it it almost revitalized me in that way because it was so exciting. So kind of little background: we uh, at work. We had a new website that we wanted to launch, Seeker.com, and they said, hey, Trace, do you have any ideas for where we should go or what we should do to kind of like push this up, you know, say like, oh, blow this out of the water. And I said, well, why don't we do some cool science stuff? Let's go to the biggest science projects in the world. And I pitched that, and they said, well, sure, if you think we can go there. So immediately that day, I emailed the people at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva and the people at the Svalbard Global Seed Vault in Longyearbyen. And they both got back to me a week later and were like, yeah, sure, come by anytime." And I was just like, one, what? That, it's that easy? And then two, because this was the first time I'd ever pitched anything this big. Uh, and it's like, it's like you're Ovechkin and you're hitting a home run, like a hole-in-one on your first time out golfing, which Alex Ovechkin did, a uh, hockey player. I don't know that much about sports. I don't know why I went there. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I saw it on YouTube. Um, <laughs> so the the Svalbard Global Seed Vault is on an island, an archipelago, 800 miles from the North Pole. It's run by Norway, but it's so far from Norway that you have to fly to Norway and then fly three and a half hours straight up to the top of the planet to get there. It's in, it's in the middle of nowhere. They have great internet because they have a science station there, so they connected it back to the mainland so they could send their data. But it's just desolate, but in a beautiful way. You know, it's mountains and water and no trees because it's too far north, and it's just incredible. But on that island, on the archipelago, they built uh, a, a kind of mine, if you will. You know, they dug a tunnel into a mountain, and then built three rooms. And all that they built it for was to put seeds in the rooms. And seeds, literal, like, you know, sunflowers and whatever else, right? You know, not literally sunflowers, but mostly corn, barley, wheat, you know, things that humans will need uh, for various reasons. But the reason being when a war happens or a disaster of any kind you know, global warming is a good example, but so is an asteroid strike or a zombie apocalypse, if that's your flavor. Things go wrong and seeds get lost. There are tens of thousands of varieties of corn, but we only grow four or five of them. So you could argue we're in one of those disasters now. So what they do is they take these seeds and they put them inside of this vault way up on top of the planet where it's cold so that let's say an asteroid hit the planet and we lost all power for 20 years, those seeds would probably still be okay. So that's why they call it a doomsday vault or its official name is the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. So I was like, that sounds awesome. Let's go there. <laughs> uh, and we did. And it was, I don't know, it was amazing. It was amazing. I mean... The vault itself is very small, but Svalbard, I mean. What's the town like? 
It's just... Who lives there? So there's not too many permanent residents. Um, and you travel all over. So you've been places where it's like kind of remote and the West isn't really felt there. I mean, this is in the West, but there was a cafe that was also the movie theater. You know, there's there's a pizza place that is also a restaurant for other stuff and a bar. There's a sushi place and a Thai place, but it's run by people who came from like countries where that was more normal food and they could just make that. So they opened those restaurants, but there are literally like eight restaurants, maybe 10 and maybe a thousand people. If that probably 800 people live there. I felt very much like Mackinac Island actually funnily enough, which I felt very much at home there. Like it's very remote. It's this place where not a lot of people live. It's surrounded by water. It's beautiful. Um, but what it is, is, uh, it's just, I'll wait for that. I go for it. Okay. It's, These mics are just, just get super close. Okay. You're fun. So what it is is essentially two roads that go to the end of the road, and there's nothing else. And after that, you walk, you know, twenty or thirty minutes, and there's a glacier. Like that's it. It's just a couple of roads, a couple cross streets, a movie theater, some restaurants, a couple bars, and a couple hotels. And people go there, and they dog sled or they, you know, go polar bear hunting. You know, I mean, not literally hunting, but they like go out and they like go see polar bears. And, you know, they you're required to carry high powered rifles, because if you leave the camp area like the site 10, they call it, then you have to have a high powered rifle. It's part of the law of Svalbard, because if you don't, you will probably be eaten by a polar bear if you go far enough. Like it's coal mining uh, is big there. Uh, so there are coal mines set up everywhere. But this was the thing that blew my mind about it is that the feel of Svalbard, a big, a big part of it is that remoteness, but it's also that feeling of kind of lawlessness, this like Old West feeling, right? You set up a mine, the mine runs dry, then you go to another mine, but the old mine's still there. It's just sitting there, and it's been there now for 50 years, 80 years. They just sit there, and they don't like fall down. No one takes them down. They're just there. Because nobody's around. Who, who's who's going to complain? The 500 people who live in town? No way. And nobody visits. So it's just this amazingly beautiful, raw place. But it feels very, like, old school. There are bucket chains that extend for miles. And, like, the cable broke who knows when ago. I went and walked up to one. It was buried underground because of just, like, the moss had grown over it. And it was just this big, giant, broken cable on the ground. But the the thing that it had been running on still there. I could have climbed on it because nobody cares. Nobody's around. Are it's, there kids there? Like, do people grow up in yeah. Slavar? Slav, you got to get this. Slaval. Sval. Sval. Bard. Svalbard. Yeah. Svalbard. S-V-A-L-B-A-R-D. It's my California accent. It's all right. It's, it's uh, see, we, in California, we don't really open our mouths that much because we're just kind of cool because we're I'm from, from California. I'm from the we Midwest, don't really. So I would be like, so you are taking Yes. <laughs> But oh my God, Svalbard is the best. Okay, back to the story. Wait, oh, what? Do kids grow up there? Is yeah, this like a, a full school. place, or do people only move to Svalbard to coal mine and yeah, do work sushi? At, like, the science, <laughs> yeah, do sushi. Um, I didn't eat the sushi there, by the way. I can't speak to whether it was good or not. But you you're know, like, this is this is the polar bear roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah, enjoy. Probably, yeah, sprinkled with polar bear hair. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of reindeer. They do eat that. That's pretty good. Um, it was pretty good. I had smoked reindeer heart. That was weird. 
Um, but yeah, people grew up there. There's a school, you know, there are families that live there. Most of them are related to the industries that are there. Although tourism is growing, there's still not a lot of tourists. Uh, be, even though it's commercially accessible, you know, a few hundred people can come on an airplane and fly there and then they fly away again the next day. But it's like they mostly come to go on a like a boat tour and then they leave. So we were there for almost for like a week and we saw people come and then go and then come back again. You know, it's just wow. like it was so interesting because Did- it's just so remote. It's still like the reason I, I mentioned that you go to remote places is because. I imagine in my mind, you know, that you go somewhere and it's like not a lot of people go to that place because you go there for a very specific reason. That's Svalbard. But it's the people who go there are like, think of the first people to go to the Yucatan and say, I'm going to be a tour guide here. I'm going to set up a tour guide spot and I'm going to be the first like white dude from Missouri to ever come here and ever like they've never seen a white dude from Missouri before. And I'm going to set up a tour spot and I'm going to like help other people who want to come here go on a dog sledding thing or like we'll get them on a boat. And like I learned, you know, Spanish and now I know how to do it. That is where Svalbard is. It's like people from all over the world came to this spot, a few of them, and they said, Hey, we can set up some tourist spots. And it's like those, adventure edge of the world kind of tourists still which is so interesting because it's not like you know the double decker bus of like well here on your right you've got the polar bear and it's like it's not that it's not that yet it's still okay you got your gun you got the right shoes on got warm gloves you don't have warm gloves we're not going you know we're not going to go because that's unsafe you will lose your fingers we can't, we can't be like, it's just me, dude. Like, you know, you, I, I can give you my gloves. Okay. Here's my gloves. I have another pair. Let's go. Like, it's still that level of like raw, which is so crazy. Wow. Yeah. It's super neat. Well, I always wonder, um, about the types of people that are drawn to those places. Right. Same. Like, what is it about that place that really draws yeah. you in? Like as a human, you're, I mean, is it, I mean, for some people, I'm sure it's an alienation, um, from like, just, I don't like people. I want to have my own thing for other people. It's like for sure that kind of raw wilderness, like I'm so curious interviewing those types of people because most people love people. They're like, I need to be around people all day long. I live in a place like San Francisco and creature comfort. I wake up, I, I, you know, throw on the podcast in the morning because I want to listen to other people and then I go to work and I listen to other people at work and then I go home and we have buddies who have drinks together and then I go to be- bed. Yeah, and you're I basically only a- fall or whatever. Yeah. Right. Like the, and, and I love people. I, I personally, I love people. And mm-hmm. when I'm my most down is when I'm alone for too long because I start yeah. getting way too inside my head and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm blowing it. I really got to get out of here. This yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I need people. <laughs> Trace, <laughs> let's have a conversation. Right, right, right. Right, but some people thrive on that. They're like, I only need myself. And yeah. it's it's fascinating to me. Like, they're just so... It seems like, it It seems like, and I don't know how how else to describe it, but like, it's these these people who kind of want to be first you know it's like the edge of the world kind of explorers right it's the people but it's it's the people that come right after them you know the first guy to walk to the to the south pole like there were some people who showed up a little while later and started setting up little camps around the edge you know they're like oh this is cool we can set up some camps here and we can you know tool around a little bit and be like we got it we got it we figured it out but it's also kind of like 
I think it's people who, and this is a stereotype, but kind of think regular, like the people who want to wake up, put on a podcast, go to work, talk to people, go home, watch football, you know, go to bed and do that again tomorrow. Though it's the people that eschew that, that, that cycle of like, well, what the fuck are we doing? You know, why don't we go move to the edge of the planet? Why don't we go like move to this war zone and live there? Because like, I want to move to this place where there aren't people who that's all they want to do. You know, I think there are definitely those kind of people who Svalbard would appeal to. That being said, um, I'll bet you a lot of people who live out in those areas, as long as there's an internet connection, they can kind of curate mm-hmm. what conversations they want to be a part of. Yeah, that's very true. Right? I mean, when, when you throw on a podcast or a, a D News video, you're, you're expecting something. You want to know something awesome? Yes. We got to Svalbard. We were staying at a hotel. It was the northernmost hotel in the world. I know that because it was at the north end of town. <laughs> that's the northernmost human settlement. Um, walked into the bar, and this guy... Uh, the bartender was like, oh, hey, you guys from uh, D News? And it was three of us, myself, Mario De La Vega, who was our producer uh, at the time, and then Matt Pignol, who was our shooter. And he, and it was just the three of us. And we, we looked at each other like, oh, did they, I mean, small town. So I was like, oh, did they tell, tell you we were coming from Discovery? And he's like, no, I watch you on YouTube. Wow. And I was just like, I like looked at the guys and I like freaked out. Like, I had, like, a freak-out moment. I was just like, the bartender at the northernmost bar in the world watches my show. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. Like, that conversation, he was a part of, even though he's in the most, literally, the most remote place on the planet. Like, in terms of human settlement, the furthest north, there is one. He was watching the same YouTube show that someone who lives in San Francisco, you know, was watching. Right. Which is awesome. The internet is amazing in that way. I feel that way um, very strongly that a lot of the most interesting conversations I'm a part of, I am listening to and have never met the people. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that it almost provides this new new frontier for the people who want to be in the new frontier where they can still be engaged in conversations in that global discussion mm-hmm. without having to sit in traffic every day. Yeah, yeah. I, do, I think that's absolutely true. I think... Uh, do you find yourself talking back at them? Because I do that a lot. Like, if I'm listening to a podcast and it's about something that I think is super interesting and somebody says something and somebody says something else, I'm like, no, what you, what you, you missed this point here. <laughs> like, I'm literally like in my car or walking down the street or, you know, driving on my scooter and I've got my headphone in and I'm just like talking to myself like a crazy person i'm just like no 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 what you missed is this what and i will sometimes pause it so i can finish my own thought and then i'll be like okay are you the guy who's in the theater in the scary movie and you're like turn around he's behind you (laughs) no 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 i'm not i'm not that i'm not that i'm not that guy although i at home i'm that guy i have like the social pressure at the movie theater to to show i'm from the midwest remember we don't we don't we don't emote that way (laughs) that way there's something um that I envy about the people that move to the edge of the world in the sense that um, you brought up a, a cool point about how it's the people who want to be first. Mm-hmm. And as a species, we want to be first, yeah. right? Like one of my favorite JFK quotes is that, um, why did we go to the moon? 
Why do we want to go to the moon? Because it is there or something. Yeah. I'm butcher, butchering it, but yeah, it's but like something it. about, it's like, it's because it is there. Mm-hmm. We want to conquer it. We want to go there, whether it's yeah. the edge of space or the bottom of the ocean. We as a species have a very deep drive to go there. And when people aren't following that drive, we lose something in ourselves. Mm-hmm. At least I do. If, if I feel that I am not challenging myself and pushing my edge, whether it be a new location or a new skill that I'm building, I get sad really fucking quick. Yeah. I'm like, I, I got to go. I, there's something missing. It's almost like I – It's like, what am I forgetting? I'm like leaving the house right now. And it's like, did I forget my car keys? Or did I forget? But it's like, oh, no, I'm forgetting some sort of exploration. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the nice thing uh, in, in what we both do uh, like day to day, you know, you're never going to surf the same wave twice. Right. Every wave is going to be different, even if the place is the same. And for me, I feel exactly the same as you. It's like the thing is, even though, as you say, I've done the same studio in the same video type of video again and again, I never do the same video twice. And in the rare occasion that we have and I realize it where we start kind of down the same path, I immediately can like feel it. It's like, oh, I already know this. This is already something we've done. We can't do this again because I've already done it. I don't want to do it again. <laughs> I want to do something else. I want to do something new, a little, little, little different. Can we like tweak it? Like do that, do that. Like there's always this drive to try again, but try it different. And I think when it comes to that's me making like kind of rationalizing my life in that way and rationalizing the the work that I do. But I think you're absolutely right that it's that there is this drive for some people and for some reason that they want to not necessarily be first in like literally, but they want to be among the first, you know, they want to be the people who have that limited edition Lego set under their bed, you know, or whatever, like the, the person who bought the stranger things vinyl this, this week at eight in the morning, <laughs> uh, there were only 500, would, there were only would, 500 of who them. Who would do such a thing? <laughs> only 500 of them. You're really on the edge of exploration, I Trace. Really what am. can I say? I really am. But like even that little thing, it's like I'm one of those 500 people who have that. Like now I have this thing. You know, we really like to be the guy or the gal. You know, we want to be that person. And sometimes it comes down to like that. Oh, I went on this cruise, and you've never been on that. You know, you can you can almost um, make it as 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 edgy or as like smooth as you want it to be. And I think some people go more for the edge of the world and some people go more for like, oh, I've been to Disney World 15 times. <laughs> you know, like you've only been 12 times. You know, we, we kind of want to one-up each other. I think that's part of it, right? Do you think that's the human ego? I think that's part of it. I think it is. Um, I think we all have egos. But is that it? I mean, is, it, it. is there something else? Yeah, I do think that there's something else. I think it's not that we're trying – I think even the nicest person is going to have some ego, but it's not that they're trying to be mean. It's that, if anything, I don't know, like a track star, right? You're, you're just trying for your next personal best. Yeah, it, it feels good if that personal best is better than the guy next to you, but if you're you know, running a race in high school or middle school and you beat your own personal best, I don't care who you are. You're as happy as the person who won a gold medal. Like, right? You are so happy. So part of it is, I think, beating the guy next to you. And part of it is being happy with you trying, right? At least for me. Like, 
I'm never going to be Brad Pitt famous. But the fact that like people come up to me on the street and say, I really love your show. That makes me happy like and warm inside. And every time it happens, it happens. Like I get, I get that same feeling, you know? And I think that's me saying like, I beat my personal best. Like I made another person happy with this, or I was able to reach this other person. or I was able to teach somebody like how to understand Hawking radiation today. You know, it's like that personal best and getting a little bit better every time. That's awesome. Like, I bet it's also feels good for you too because you get to talk about things that you really care about. It would like oh, I don't th- care about any of that, right? You're like <laughs> science. science. I just I just do it for I just do it for the chicks. Yeah. I'm just doing it for the, for the money for the chicks. nerd is the, the new sexy. The, yeah, no, but I mean but for real though, there is uh, an element that I would guess that you feel of that like. I came up with that story idea because it's something that oh, I found yeah, yeah. interesting and this person on the street found it interesting also. So yes. it, so it's not just fame for the sake of fame. Like like yeah. that kind of hollow weird like 15 second of like oh my god you did that thing like that would just be so weird because it's not grounded in anything. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the first time I ever got recognized on the street, it was a guy named Curtis. It was in McDonald's in Washington DC in the neighborhood uh, like on R Street or something. It's great McDonald's, uh, really good chicken nuggets. I'd been drinking all day with my friends, and we went to this McDonald's, and I had been on the show for a very short period of time, like a few months, because I was still living in D.C., so it would have been probably the first six months of D News. And this guy walks up, and he's like, are you Trace from D News? And it was, and my girlfriend was with me, and she was like, yes, he is! And she freaked out and like got a picture. And anyway, Curtis awesome like awesome dude he was really nice i followed him on twitter and like we ended up chit-chatting a bit but it was like since then i have tried to push and see what is there because that interaction is so interesting like that interaction is an interaction that most people will never have right so i want to probe it and see what's there and it's been really fun (laughs) and i feel like really awkward for the people who've walked up to me so i apologize to them now but I specifically try and keep talking to them until they leave awkwardly. Not because I'm trying to be mean, because I want to see what's there. I want to see what this relationship is. Because you're, you're right that um, I want to like reach out and show people this cool science thing that I think is super cool. And I think every person who tells stories, like every journalist, every movie maker, every writer, every blogger, every person who does a Tumblr, like even a fucking like – Twitter person who thinks about how they tweet. Like if they're just tweeting things that they're thinking about, they're doing it because they want somebody to recognize that, isn't this interesting? Isn't this thought that I had kind of cool? But when you meet somebody in real life and they only know you from that thing, damn, that's interesting because you're a stranger to them, right? Let's say, let's say, I followed you on Twitter and I'd followed you on Twitter forever. And I walked up to you like, Oh my God, you're Kyle. I've been following you on Twitter forever. I have now told you one, everything I know about you other than the stuff that you've tweeted. I know that I've followed you on Twitter, but it's really not what I know about you. It's what I know about me. So usually what happens in that interaction, the next thing they tell you is they either ask you if they can get a picture and then they walk away or they engage you in a conversation and that's when it's really fun. Cause I like to say like, Oh cool. What's your favorite episode? Like how long have you been following me? What are you doing today? Like 
what's what do you do for a living like tell me about yourself and sometimes in that mode of conversation people realize oh shit i don't actually know this guy i don't know who he is i don't know anything about his life so he's asking me those questions that a stranger asks another stranger you know what do you do like i actually don't know what you do because i don't know you like that's that's such an interesting interaction and some people handle it like wow you're actually interested you're a human i'm a human let's relate and some people are like they they kind of hit this wall where holy crap he doesn't know who i am but i know who he is and then they feel awkward um and it's sort of a personal experiment i don't mean to make people feel awkward and i do my best to like continue talking to them and trying to make them feel comfortable but sometimes people feel so awkward they have to leave <laughs> and they have to walk away and i feel bad but but i think it's so interesting to find out why people walk up to strangers who they know from from youtube i think it's so great i love when people come up and it makes me feel good but i also want to know why they do it like why do you walk up um and the guy next to you who also knew the show would not have done it you know is it because they're i don't know braver more excited or is it because they know more about me is it because they want to know more about me do they want a picture do they not want a picture do they want to i don't know i just think it's so neat it's so it's such a cool interaction and it's so rare Lucy K um, has a good a good thing that he does where someone asks walks up to him and asks him for a photo. He won't take the photo, but he'll said, "I'll talk to you for five minutes." Hmm. And he's like, "And it's amazing how many people will just walk away because they only want really? the photo." Oh wow! I would love to talk to Louis C K for, for five, five minutes. minutes. Oh my god, for half that time. What would you ask him if I could talk to Louis C K for five minutes? I would say, "Why you still have a goatee?" <laughs> I had a goatee for ten years. For ten years. I had a goatee, and now I don't anymore, and I feel great about it. So I just would want to know. I don't know what he would say, but that's, I think that's where I would start. Because then we could learn, you know, oh, well, maybe he would say, I don't care. I don't, I don't know if he got this from me, but I, I map out people's conversations. <laughs> when I have hypothetical conversations, I try and answer my own questions and answer other people's. But it's like he might say, well, you know, it's something I've had for a long time. My wife likes it. My Kids like it. This is just who I am now. You know, this is part of my brand. Like, there could be a hundred answers, but it, all I, of them I would really be doubt he would say it's part of my brand. Yeah, I really don't think that Louis C.K. would say that. You're right. But if he did, holy shit, you would learn a lot about him. <laughs> I really would. What if he walked up to Louis C.K. and said, "Why do you still have your goatee?" And he says, "It's part of my brand." I'd be like, "Oh fuck, you are not who I thought you were." <laughs> Drops your knees. Yeah. And just be like, no. Oh, I should have just gotten the photo from afar. <laughs> Why? I feel like, I wonder what he would say. I don't know. But yeah, what would you ask him? I would ask Louis C.K. Um, Louis C.K. did a really good job of of popularizing the frustrated dad. Mm. Like, some of my favorite... Lucy K jokes are like, I got sick the other day because my three-year-old coughed into my mouth. <laughs> and that's what happens when you are a dad. I would ask him about at what point he realized that he that could be funny. Hmm. Because be before it's always this like, oh yeah, smoking oh, weed and then women, like I, man, they're yeah, different. like I pulled yeah. out my dick on the girl and it yeah. just you know, but like yeah. he 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 fully just went to this part of society that most overlook that yeah. like forty something year old dad who's just dealing with life and mm -hmm. your kids and like 
nailed it so hard. But I would ask him if there was a moment that he realized he could really dig into that. Yeah. Or or if it was just simply something where he um it was just a part of his life and he always talks about what's real for him and what's yeah. what's honest. But hmm. man, that guy impresses me just yeah. with the the sure uh, the sheer um volume of content that he's able to come out with. I mean, he he had his um what's his show called again? The uh the Louis Louis, Louis. yeah, yeah Louis. Louis. I mean, he, right? he's like writer, producer, actor. Also tours on comedy. I, mm-hmm. I would also ask him. I mean, this might be like question three or four, but about that's when it gets interesting. That's when it gets three, interesting. Three, four, five, right? Five. But just about his process of how he's able to be so prolific. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, you know that's a cool thought, right? Um, and we were talking about this earlier before we were on the podcast, and we we're talking about kind of like. I think there are just some people who keep writing, who keep doing, who keep like creating stuff. It's not that they mean to. It, it's almost like you can't stop it. Um, I didn't know I was that person. And now that I know I'm that person, I'm like constantly making notes in my phone of like, oh, I should talk about this. Oh, I should do that. I'm like, you know, constantly making these little kind of snippets of like future ideas that, to be honest, probably will never get made. Maybe they will, but I feel better that I wrote it down. Um, and I, I, I like feel like he's probably that person, right? Do you know Tegan and Sarah, the the band Tegan and Sarah? I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah, they're they're great. Um, and I can't remember who, but one of them is, I think it's Sarah. Don't remember. One of them is prolific, like that's what she does. She just writes like dozens and dozens and dozens of lyrics and songs, and that's what she she just it just comes out of her all the time. And when you do that, you know. And you have a good editor and a good creative, like, soundboard. And, you know, it, it's it's a good artist who just paints a thousand paintings a week. One of those might be good, right? But you need somebody to say, oh, that's the good one. So it's it's always a team effort. But I bet you he's one of those people that, like, he just constantly is, is, is coming out with stuff. Aziz Ansari is another good example when people talk about stand-up. Uh, of who is just constantly working. How the hell do you do this? Um, you know, he comes out with like a Netflix special every year for like two or three years he was doing this. And it's like, how the fuck do you do an hour of material every single year? Like some people have an hour. Like you could go back and listen to RIP, listen to Robin Williams, and he will still restate the same jokes he was doing in the 70s in his Broadway special. Because when you get good material, you stick to it. And I don't think he wasn't prolific. I think he wasn't as much of a writer, you know? Like, he is prolific once you get him on a roll. But he has said in interviews that he doesn't write it down. It just kind of comes to him and it happens, right? You know, his process isn't that way. So I feel like Louis C.K. is just one of those guys that he's just constantly scrolling it out, you know? How do you scroll your stuff out? Um, I mean, you're, you don't do stand-up comedy, but, you, but, you're, stand-up. but you're prolific in the way that you do D-News. Yeah. You do D-News Plus, which was your brainchild – and you're out in the field also doing stories that many times um, weren't from your – yeah. you, know, you brought it to yeah. the table. Yeah. But like what, what is it actually like the process? Like do you write it down in notes no. and then does that transfer to a Google Doc? Like how does – because the, the thing that I yeah. struggle with a lot of times is that I'll write down a lot of ideas in notes um, 
just like on my phone and then it'll get so cluttered that I'll feel overwhelmed to actually try and organize it on Mm -hmm. something like a Google doc. Right. And, um, figuring out that step-by-step process is something that I'm still kind of dealing with. Sure. But, uh, I I think that that's actually where it gets stuck. It's not that the ideas don't come, but it's like how to actually get that idea and develop it into something that might turn into a made story. Yeah, yeah. What's your process? Well, for me, that's a good, I don't know, man. I mean, uh, to bring it back a little bit. Let's say you had a good idea right yeah, now. There's a, a, there's a bag idea, of pretzels on the table I wanna, right I now. I want to talk about how they go stale or something. I don't think that was actually a great idea. But what I would first do is I go to my phone and I would write it down. Because if I don't write it down, it's gone. Like there are plenty of times where like I'm at a, a cocktail party or a social situation where it would be really, really rude to pull out my phone and I just have this like little lightning bolt hit me. And if I can't get away five minutes later, I'm like, I fucking had an idea and it was a fucking good one. And now it's gone. It's just gone. And I rack my brain and it never comes back. And it just hurts my soul. And that happened so many times that I started a note in my phone uh, that uh, that's just ideas and some of them are shitty and a few of them are probably pretty good but it's just a long like you can scroll for a while like there are hundreds of these little notes and some of them i made at two in the morning and some of them i made on the bus and some of them i made you know there there are those shower thoughts you know moments um where you're you're just in this like kind of white space of the world and it, it kind of pops in your head and, and you're like that's a fucking great idea, but you can't write it down in the shower, so you just have to hold on to it and not think about anything else, and sometimes it disappears, you know? But that's the hard part is getting, for me, is getting it onto the onto the note. Of course, that being said, most of the stuff that's on that note is never going to be made, and I don't actually think I've ever gone into that note and said, I'm going to make this today. So I'm still not there yet for myself. At work... What it comes down to is conversations, reading the news, reading, uh, you know, scientific papers. We did a thing recently about um, a new brain wave that had been discovered uh, that had to do with texting. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And while I was reading about this new brain wave that we were doing a video about, all I could think was, oh, what, what are brain waves anyway? Like, what are brain waves about? And it was just a question I had. And then I looked, and we hadn't talked about it ever, and I did, like, a quick Google search and was like, oh, damn, this is interesting. So I wrote it down, you know, and I wrote it down. I was in a place where I could write it down where it would get into our process. So I think for me, unfortunately, I'm not a good model to follow because I have that kind of sounding board set up. But I think the the hardest part is getting it from your brain out of your brain. From there... It's getting it in front of other people. Like, but, and this is, this is the hard part, not telling people, hey, I want to do this. Let me give you an example. Uh, Nerdist podcast had a great topic, like great talk about this, but, he, but I think Chris said he doesn't tell people what he's working on because, or about to work on because the feedback you get from others telling them what you're about to do is so strong that it makes you less likely to actually do the thing. Like you want them to be excited about the finished product. 
not about the idea to make the finished product. Like if I told you I'm going to write a novel and then I told you what the novel was going to be about, it might diminish me wanting to write the novel because I want you to be excited about the novel, not the idea. So there's that like gray area, that dangerous area where I need to pitch you the idea about pretzels and their moistness or not. But I don't want to give you so much that you give me feedback of like, oh, that's amazing, and then I never do it. Right. Derek Sivers has a great TED Talk. Do you know who Derek Sivers is? Um, the guy who made CD Babies has a bunch of super popular TED Talks about how when you tell someone your idea, there were all these studies done about um, that traditionally it's like, oh, you should tell people your ideas and get it out there, but that people felt a sense of accomplishment that hadn't actually been achieved, go. right? Yeah. Well, I tell you, Trace, I'm going to do this awesome podcast and it's going to be great, but I haven't actually done it. And you're like, that's such a cool that's idea. That's a cool idea. Right? You I'm like, totally do that. Hell yeah, it is. And then you, I feel further along than then I actually am. Back to eating your burger. And right. That. So, so there were all these studies that they did about people who told others about their ideas and other ones who didn't. And anyway, long story short, um, it's a cool TED Talk. You can type uh, D-E-R-E-K-S-I-V-E-R-S TED Talk on why you shouldn't tell people yeah. what you're going to do. That's so interesting. And so, yeah, so since I, I heard that on Nerdist and you heard it on a much more uh, scholarly source, I'm going to have to go watch that TED Talk so I can quote that in the future. Um, but, <laughs> but like, I think that's a really true thing. So I keep my list to myself, but when I get the nerve up to make an idea off my list or go and pitch an idea that, you know, came out of my brain to the D news team or the D news plus team, um, once it's out there and we're noodling over whether we want to do it, then it's cool. Like then it's safe. I feel like now it's in a safe place and I think the big part about my process and the big part that I think is difficult to learn about that process is being is letting go at that point. Like if I tell you I'm going to make a video about pretzels and and we're going to now talk about making that video. So we're like, oh, cool. OK, well, let's talk about pretzels. What about pretzels is cool. OK, cool, cool. And we're the people who are going to make the video. I need to let go of it because if I cling to the pretzels video so much it's going to die because I'm clinging to it. And if they try and kill it, I'm going to get mad. And I can't take it that, that seriously, right? Once the idea is out in the world, you need to let it go. It's like you can't be too precious about it because it's gonna, you're going to end up either being hurt when it doesn't work, doesn't look the way you want, or you're going to strangle it, you know? I bet that's something you've gotten better at too, having to pitch ideas every single day in a meeting. You come, I mean, you're going to go to work tomorrow morning. Yeah. Look I mean, at the news. I already have written some ideas into our, our pitch, like Google Doc. Right. And you, and you know some of them aren't going to live. Yeah. So you have to let go of that. Thousands of pitches yeah. have, that have never been made. And some of them are really good. Like sometimes I go back and look at old pitches and I'm like, oh, why didn't we make that? That was so interesting. And the key is, I don't know. There were better pitches that day. Pitch me on an idea. Let, let, let's say that um, you're coming in on uh, – yeah. let's say you're new to it, right? Because you have a certain uh, amount of authority and amount of confidence from having pitched a million ideas. Sometimes. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes yeah. not. But like, let's, say, let's say that you're new coming into it for someone you know, in the creative realm who, yeah. who gets into a room with other producers and they want to pitch their idea. Yeah. Um, how would you go about pitching an idea? 
Well, first... We sit down yeah. for here. How does that actually work? Before we sit down, know what's cool about it. Know what is a little different or that you can tell this story differently, right? If you don't know those two things, you can't just show up with an idea. An idea is not a pitch. Like, the sun is hot is a fact, right? Why the sun is hot is an idea. The sun is hot because of this and this is different. That's a pitch, Right. And I'm going to tell the story in this way. Like you have to go further than just like schizophrenia is cool. You're right. It is cool. What's cool about it? Like you have to be able to answer that question. Otherwise, you're not pitching. You're just telling me an idea, you know. So if we were going to talk about something like, I don't know, how long have we been making wine? And I wanted to pitch you an idea about it. I would say, so I found this thing. It's a new study from an archaeologist who found this really old winemaking kit. I want to talk about when we started making wine and how it's changed since when it was first made. Like, that's a pitch. It's a pitch that's it's maybe different than other, what other people have done. Maybe other people have done it. What, then you can come back to me as the editor and say, well, what are we going to do that's different from you know, the Atlantic who just did that six months ago? And then I have to know enough about the story that I can then come back to you with at least a little more information. But like a teacher in elementary school, you really only have to be a day ahead of your students, right? You don't have to be so far ahead that you know everything, but you have to be enough ahead that if they ask you a question, that you can answer it. And that's, that's I think, the, the idea behind a good pitch is that you know enough that you can give them something they didn't have already, and when they ask you a follow-up, you can probably answer it or give them an educated guess so it's hard to do without a specific idea in mind but like the wine one i think is a pretty good example if you can't find a study on that you can at least say like i was getting drunk with my friends last night and we started thinking about how old beer is is the beer that we brew today or the wine that we brew today different from the wine that we were brewing then like that's a cool question maybe a question other people have asked but it's like, oh, but when did blank type of wine come up? Or when did like we start cultivating these grapes? Or are grapes, and this is how we would do it on DNews, are grapes an invasive species? Like we're growing them everywhere, you know? And now, again, back to the three question thing. You start asking questions of yourself, and you can also find pitches that way, right? So today in our meeting, we talked about the Bureau of Land Management is going to kill, I think, 25,000 horses wild horses out in the West, and people are mad about it. I get that they're mad. It's a big deal. I don't want to say something that would make people mad about horses because people love them like they're puppies. They're not puppies, but that's cool. Um, they have eyebrows. We they care about they have them. eyebrows, and they're very emotional and cute, but they're also giant animals that aren't native to North America. So I pitched... Whoa. So I pitched an idea that was essentially, should we have horses, right? Because... They're an invasive species. They have no natural predators in North America. And then we started thinking about it. And who are the natural predators of horses? Like, what animal can take down a horse? And if so, what? Wow, that's cool. Where did they come from? Like, what's the history of horses in Europe? Like, how did they evolve there? And what were their predators? And, you know, like, you end up with all these cool ideas. But the pitch was originally, like, based on a story that was kind of sad. So sometimes you got to flip it. I don't know if I really answered your question there. I think it gave like five different answers. It's fine. It's fascinating. Anyway. Yeah. I'm going to let you go soon too because you got to get up early and go oh, to do this. Oh my God. What time is it? It's 1030. Wow. Yeah. It's getting late. I think the thing to remember uh, about pitching stuff 
is when to move on. If you've been talking about it for five minutes and most of the five minutes have been kind of like waffling, just own up and be like, you know what, let's move on. I've been doing that a lot more in our meetings lately because we have a new staff and the new staff is not used to pitching stuff and sometimes they get a little precious about their story. They're like, I really love this idea. It's like, look, there's gonna be thousands more ideas. You know, you can't see every movie in the theaters. You have to pick which ones are the best, the ones that you want. And the other ones wait for video, you know, wait for Netflix, wait for Hulu, whatever. And that's how it works with pitches too. There's gonna be thousands more of those. Just pick the best one. Um, wrapping up here, uh, you know, we talked a lot about what it is that you're good at and what it is that you enjoy. Moving forward, what do you want to be doing more of? You know, that's that's funny. I was talking about that earlier today too, and I think the thing I want to do the the thing I want to keep doing is what we were talking about about teaching people something. You know, and whether that means like going off of YouTube and going and teaching at a college or something, or, um, you know, staying on YouTube and doing something on my own channel or staying with discovery, which I really wanted to keep doing and like maybe doing more of the Svalbard stuff and like trying to teach people in a different way than just standing in a studio and talking with them about this topic that I found interesting. Like there are a thousand different ways to teach people things. I'd like to explore some more of those. You know, try different ways to to get people excited about science and technology and engineering and mathematics and you know and and all of these topics that are that I don't know are near and dear to me. Um, I think what I'd really like to do is get more people to want to learn stuff, which I think is kind of talking like this, showing people that you don't have to be a PhD to learn science. You don't have to be uh, you know, an artist is just somebody who painted a lot. It's not somebody who, like, you don't have to go to art school. You know, you just have to keep trying stuff. Like, I'm not a I'm not a YouTube star. I'm a dude who was paid to, to stand in front of a camera. I didn't have a choice in that. I could have quit my job and been unemployed, or I could have made video. So I kept making video because I liked it. I mean, that helps. But it's like, it's also just trying stuff and trying it again and again and again, you know. What's the saying? Like, if you do something so many thousand times, you become an expert in it? The 10,000 hour rule? Is that yeah, what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm probably an expert in making YouTube videos now of this specific type. But other than that, I don't think I'm an expert in anything. And it would have been the first time I've been an expert in anything in my life, which is pretty cool. Like, I'm actually okay with that. That's cool, man. <laughs> I love talking with you. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to... Um, talk about before we shut it down um i think the most important thing that i've learned in all of the years of doing this is to remember like and i mean all of the years in talking to people like when i was working at the museum when i've been working on d news when i've been going and talking to like groups or whatever and doing this like is and, and even meeting strangers on the street this is the first time they've ever done this. This is the first time they've ever heard this info. And remember that because if you say the same thing 10 times, you know, if you say welcome to McDonald's the same way every time, people can feel that. If you say welcome to D News every time, people can feel that. If you say, you know, I'm, 
Iron Man 10 times. You know, I'm sure they shot that scene more than once. He didn't say, I am Iron Man one time. He said it 50 times. And remembering to be able to keep it fresh for the people you're talking to, like, that's awesome. That's the cool part. Like, that's the fun part, is trying to find that thing in you that you can keep it fresh. You are awesome, Chase. <laughs> Where can people get in touch with you? Um, Twitter's the easiest. I read all of my tweets, all of them. I don't always respond because I get a few, um, but Twitter at Trace Dominguez, D-O-M-I-N-G-U-E-Z. Uh, and that's the easiest. Um, I'm also on Snapchat and Instagram and other things, Trace501, most other places. But And you do D-News every day. You do D-News Plus, and you have your new YouTube channel. Yes. Which I, is awesome. I have, I have my own YouTube channel now. You can go to YouTube.com slash Trace Dominguez. Um, and yeah, my day-to-day, I'm at YouTube.com slash D-News almost every day. I'm at YouTube.com slash D-News Plus five days a week. Thanks for taking the time, man. This hey, is really generous. It was awesome. I was glad to, I was glad to get in on it. I'll do it again. Just ask. (laughs) We'll have to make that happen. All right. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. If you want these podcasts and my mini documentaries delivered to your front door, and by front door, I mean inbox, sign up for my newsletter. Go to kyle.surf. Check it out. No spam ever. Just great stuff. Until next time, hope you all have a fantastic day.